Good morning. I wonder if you've noticed that I'm not Jeff. <laughs> I'm John. But if perchance you're a little bit confused, I think there's a good reason why. You see, ever since Jeff changed his diet and lost all that weight, he's become so lean and mean and chiseled. Well, a lot of folks have just been mistaking us for identical twins. <laughs> it's okay with me, though, because the longer I know Jeff, the more I come to love him. And Oh, it'd be great to have him in the family, no doubt about it. Well, as you know, Jeff is on sabbatical this week, and he's out somewhere on the Appalachian Trail hiking, and I understand that he's doing very well. I had a chance to talk with Denise briefly yesterday, and she gave a bit of an update. He's making good time. In fact, he's a little bit ahead of schedule, evidently, and uh, he's enjoying himself. We were concerned, Paul and I were concerned about the possibility of these cold nights and how he was making out, but evidently it's no problem at all. He's having a time of his life and having a great experience, so I'm sure we're going to have a lot of wonderful stories when he returns, and it's going to be very, very helpful to all of us as well as it is being helpful right now to Jeff. So we're grateful that he's having this good experience because it's going to bless all of us in the long run, isn't it? Well, while Jeff's gone, uh, he's entrusted this pulpit to me. I hope that was not a mistake on his part, <laughs> but I'm pleased to be able to share with you today. I count it indeed an honor to be able to stand before you. And this morning we're going to be reflecting upon uh, a story that's found in the Old Testament. Actually, Jeff gave me a couple of passages of scripture and asked me to choose one of those so that we might be in keeping with the theme of this Lenten season. And I've chosen the one from the Old Testament. The book is 1 Samuel, not a book to which we turn all that often, but it's an amazing story. I'm going to be reading in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, beginning with verse number 1. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul, I've rejected him as the king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be the new king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord insisted. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, 
The Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel asked, are all these sons of your, that you have? And they're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Well, this morning we're going to be focusing upon this wonderful theme found in 1 Samuel. The Lord looks into the heart. You and I may take some time and, and look at outward appearances. We may make judgments, but not so with God. The Lord looks into the heart. That's our theme of the morning. That's the thought that we're going to pursue. But just before we get into that, will you do me the favor of joining me in a brief word of prayer? Oh, gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, we pray. O oh Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Are you familiar with this story? It's really quite fascinating. Wonderful, wonderful story that gives us a new insight into how God looks upon his creation. And this story comes at a critical moment in the development of Israel's history. You see what's happened, it's time for there to be a change in the political structure in Israel. Samuel, at this stage of the game, is known as a prophet. Prior to that, he had been a judge, one of those charismatic leaders that would just come from nowhere when Israel was having a problem. They're now in the Promised Land, by the way, have been there for some 410 years, if you can believe that. And over the course of those 410 years, there have been 12 different judges that have come up in the midst of a problem tried to solve those problems with the help of the people, and then they would disappear. Well, Samuel was one of those judges. Only Samuel didn't disappear when the problem was complete. Instead, he stuck around, and God chose to make him a prophet. And so it was that he was now on not just the Lord's response, not, not, not just the, the job that the Lord had given him, but he was, giving, he was calling him to a new possibility because the people, the people of Israel were beginning to cry out. They were upset. See, their structure wasn't working. This deal with the judges popping up every now and again and helping them solve problems, there's no stability. And so they started to cry out to the Lord. They needed some help. They wanted for there to be a sense of permanence about what they were doing. They wanted a king. Now, this was unusual because usually, most of the time, when, when this relationship between God and his people was taking place, it was God who was giving the instruction. But now it was the people who were giving instruction or making a request of God. They wanted a king, someone to lead them, someone to help them deal with the economic pressures that they were facing, someone to help them with their, against their enemies, someone to be there to, to, to guide them. Yeah, 
was time for a change. And so the Lord spoke to Samuel, and Samuel had the responsibility to find that new king. And he went about his task, and he called a guy named Saul. And Saul came to the fore, but it seems that there was a mistake that had been made because Saul was not really the kind of a person that the people were seeking, nor was he the person that God really wanted. We kind of learn about that as Saul's life unfolds. You see, Saul was self-centered. Saul was corrupt. Saul was the kind of a person who didn't care about anyone except himself. And so everything he did was, was built to try and help him gain power and influence, not only with his own people, but in the world all around. And the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, this isn't right. Samuel, I've got news for you. You've got to travel again. You've got to go see this guy Saul. Let him know he's fired right now. Stat, get it done. And so Samuel went to talk with Saul. Gave him the bad news. Saul, you're done. But Saul didn't like what he heard. And hence we have an undercurrent that's beginning to take place. It seems that Saul didn't want to step down. Can you imagine? <laughs> A politician who didn't want to give up his power. And in this particular case, Saul was tremendously dangerous because he was going out against people who disagreed with him. If you didn't like what he was doing, you were dead. It was that simple. So Samuel was about his task. He did what he had to do, and then he, he got out of town, and he did his best to lay low. But now God speaks to him again, and this time he says, all right, there's someone that you need to be looking for. I have a new king in mind. I want you to go and I want you to see a guy named Jesse and see his sons. And I'm going to show you which one that you want to call out. Now, Saul wasn't sure he liked that idea. He didn't really want to be on the road traveling because if, if Saul found out about that, I should say Samuel was afraid because if Saul found out about that, he would kill him. If he found out he was going to find a new king, that was going to be all, all that was written for this man named Samuel. So he didn't really want to do it, did he? But the Lord said to him, here's the deal. We're going to be sneaky about this. Get a heifer, and you're going to make a sacrifice. If anybody says anything, tell them that's what you're doing. So he took off with his heifer and his traveling companions, and guess where they went? To a little town called Bethlehem, because that's where Jesse lived arrived in Bethlehem and the community elders saw him and, and they were immediately a bit distressed because they knew of his connection to Saul and they wondered if Samuel was coming to create problems for them. Well, the good news was, of course, that Samuel wasn't there to create problems. He was there to bring about a sense of peace. And so, so it goes that he meets with Jesse he meets with the community elders. He invites them all to take some time to share with him in sacrifice and in worship. That put the foundation in place. And once that foundation was there, they could go about the task of finding a new king for the people of Israel. Eliab. That's the first son that he met. He was the oldest. Did you notice the, sto the story said he was strong? He was ruddy. And Samuel took one look 
And he said, oh, this is the guy. I'm standing before the one who's to be anointed. Only he was wrong. He wasn't the guy. And that's when the Lord spoke to him again. And listen to what he said this time, because this is at the heart of it all. This is really a message that was given, not just to Samuel, but it's my conviction, it's a message that is given to each and every one of us. Listen, Samuel, he says. People look on the outside. They want to see what, and make judges, judgments about what people are looking like and how they're acting, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. The Lord looks into the heart. Samuel, that's what you need to do. Look into the heart of Jesse's sons and you will know who you're supposed to call. And so he does. The next six sons come by and he interviews them, I suppose you might say, speaks with them, but he has no strong sense that they're the ones that are to be chosen to be king. And he's confused. So Samuel says to Jesse, I, I, I don't understand what's going on. I know one of your sons is going to be the king. Is this, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse said, well, no, not exactly. There's one more, but he's the youngest. He's out now taking care of the sheep and the goats. That's what he does. It was Samuel's, or it was Jesse's way of telling Samuel that, nah, he's not king material. Forget him. But Samuel said, no, no, bring him in. I want to meet him. And so he did. And this young man came in. And did you hear the way they described him? He too was strong and ruddy, but he had beautiful eyes. You hear that distinction? Beautiful eyes. You've heard it said, haven't you, that the eyes can be the pathway into the soul. Well, something happened when Samuel looked at this young man. They were able to discern in one another uh, a spark. They were able to sense that there was some some touch of the spirit in some way resting within. They looked into each other's eyes. They, they spoke, I have no doubt. They talked about what was going on. And in a moment, in a moment, Samuel knew this is the one. This is the king. And you know who he was, don't you? You know the name. David. David, the new king that's going to come out of a little town called Bethlehem. Astounding, isn't it? Especially when you look at a big picture and you realize that in another thousand years, there's going to be another king coming out of a little town called Bethlehem. And his name is Jesus. Now, in David's time, it's said that he was the most famous of all of Israel's kings. He was the best one. He was number one. And that's the way it stood until along came Jesus. Powerful story. That ability to put aside outward appearances, to put aside judgment, and instead to look into the heart. 
Now, that's a message that started with Samuel when he was choosing a king named David. But we understand that that was a message that would live long into the future because this is precisely what Jesus was about as well. He came into this world, into this life, and what did he do? He looked into the soul. He looked into the spirit of everyone he met. And we understand through the experience of Jesus that everyone has within them this spirit, this spirit of God. It rests within each and every one of us, and we have a responsibility to look upon each other, not to make judgments, not to, to take in what a person is wearing or how they're acting in that moment, but to look into the heart, to see the essence of who they are. You know, this heart is a beautiful metaphor that's used throughout Scripture. This concept that when we look into the heart, we see the essence and we see the truth of who a human being truly is. That's how we come to know one another, how we build community, when we understand a little bit about the reality that God is resting in another soul. We can immediately be drawn into a loving relationship. That is exactly what Jesus was teaching us. You remember? There's a critical time when Jesus shares this word with his people. I am the way and the truth and the life. Remember those words? No one comes to the Father but by me. Do you recall where those words came from? It was the night when Jesus was betrayed. The very night we're going to be remembering in a couple of weeks. It's called Monday Thursday. Taken from the Latin, mandatum. It's a corruption of the word in our English language, but it literally means mandate. There was a mandate given in the upper room, you see, when Jesus was with his disciples. Remember what it was? Love one another. That love stems from the heart and is shared in relationship with the people all around us. God has created us and stands at the center of his creation. Love one another. I love the way a guy named Frederick Beekner describes this particular passage. Listen to what he says. This is at the heart of what Jesus is, is trying to communicate. Jesus didn't say that any particular ethic, doctrine, or religion was the way, the truth, and the life. He said that he was. He didn't say that it was by believing or doing anything in particular that you could come to the Father. He said it was only by him, by living, participating in, being caught up, <coughs> excuse me, being caught up in the way of life that he embodied. That was his way. Richard Rohr creates a beautiful picture of what this way looks like. He writes, The quest is a mapless journey. There is no single road. When you dare leave the map behind, Jesus emerges as the road itself and the light that guides. This, when you come right down to the heart of it, is the truth of the matter. 
what happens when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it means that we're to emulate the way that he lives. It means that we have to embrace his truth, the truth that his life represents, and we have to allow our lives to be an expression of that truth. And what is the truth? It's quite simple. God is love. <clears throat> it unfolds in a powerful way in John's first epistle. Listen to the way he describes that. Just in case you're wondering if God is at the center of your life, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. God is in us. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. When we understand this, we understand our truest and our deepest selves. That's the power of Jesus. The ability to bring about transition in the way we understand ourselves, and the ability to be able to look at another human being and to see into their heart and understand that they too are called to be a loving person just as you are, just as we all are. There is that of God in every human being. And when we are in relationship with God, that love comes to light. I've said a lot. <laughs> so I guess I better quit. But before I do, I want to share with you a story. It's a great story. It happened to me about 35 years ago, and I will never, ever forget that moment in time. It's about two weeks to Christmas when it happened, and I was in a car dealership. It was called Performance Honda, by the way, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Why do I remember that? <laughs> I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I remember... <laughs> Performance Honda in Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, I was sitting there in the waiting room, and my car was being worked on. There were a few other folks that were present as well. But there were two. There were two who were there who really grabbed my attention. I guess you might say they were somewhat countercultural. They looked very, very different than the rest of us who were in that room. And I couldn't help but wonder, what's the deal with these folks? <laughs> now, you're saying to yourself, uh-huh, what have you just been talking about? <laughs> you were looking at those folks and you were making a judgment on the way that they looked. And you're right. That's exactly what I was doing. Not proud of it, but that's what was happening. But if I have any excuse at all, it rests in the fact that I wasn't the only one. Because you know what was starting to happen? Evidently, the word was getting around in that dealership that there were a couple of different people sitting in the waiting room. Because one by one, different people who were working 
at the performance Honda dealership, would come by the door, stop, take a look in, search, and you could tell when they found what they were looking for. They were looking for those two young people. And the responses on their faces were amazing. Some were amused. Some just kind of shook their head with a kind of disgust. Some just kind of looked at him and walked away. And that's the way it was on that morning in Performance Honda. Well, I quickly learned that these two young people were students at the University of Cincinnati. And they were there waiting for their car to be fixed. And they brought along a little work. She was working on some math. I guess for a course that she was taking. And he had an assignment. He was taking a literature course. Now, as different looking as these two were, they were also behaving in a different way. They were loud. They were obnoxious. <laughs> she complained a little bit about her math assignment, but she couldn't compare to this guy that was with her. His professor had assigned him to read are you ready for this? The Gospel of John. <laughs> and he wanted no part of it. He was thoroughly disgusted. And you could hear by his words and you could see by his actions that he didn't want to do anything of the sort. Who does he think he is? He's now proclaiming aloud. He's getting himself worked up. Who does he think he is? Forcing this crap down our throats. And he's going on, and he's talking about this story <laughs> that he really doesn't understand. I'm sure he hadn't read it. But he was going on to say, I don't get Christians. They're fools. How can they believe in that garbage? And he used some other colorful language as well, as you might imagine. <laughs> well, I just sat there taking all of this in. I didn't say a word. I was just kind of watching him. And he was going on and on and getting louder and louder. But you know, I believe that every person has a right to make their own decision when it comes to faith. I don't believe we do have the right or the responsibility to force something down a person's throat. They have to come to their own sense of spirit. They have to grow to that point where they can take in for themselves in terms they understand what it means to be a child of faith. And obviously, this young man wasn't ready to make that happen. At least I didn't think so at the moment. So I just sat there and I let him go on for a while. And then he crossed the line. He opened up the Bible and he started to read aloud to his friend, but to all of us that were in there, he started to read aloud the beginning of the Gospel of John. You know how it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Well, that's what he was reading, but he wasn't reading it quite that way. He was being very sarcastic. And he was like one of those TV evangelists. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Well, now he'd crossed the line. I put down the magazine that I'd been pretending to read. <laughs> and I looked across the room at him. And I listened to him as he went on. 
he was suggesting how ridiculous this was. It made no sense at all. It's fabrication. Nobody could ever begin to know what he's talking about. It's foolishness, he said. And then I just looked at him and I said, well, you know, sometimes foolishness isn't really bound up in what we're reading as much as it is in the attitude that we bring to something that we're reading that we don't understand. And he just looked at me like I was from outer space. <laughs> I said, I can understand why you're confused. That's a tough passage of scripture. It doesn't make any sense. You're absolutely right until you get to the heart of it. What was the author trying to say? What was the purpose? I can help you understand that if you'd like. And he looked at me and he said, hey, dude, this ain't none of your business. First time anybody ever called me a dude. <laughs> I felt like I'd arrived. And in response to his comment, I said, well, young man, that's where you're wrong. You see, this really is my business. <laughs> and I'd be glad to help you understand what you're doing if you're interested. Well, he didn't, he didn't say anything. So I took that as a yes. <laughs> and I said, okay, here's what I'd like you to do. Read that again, but this time with some respect. Read it like, like, you, like you like it. And so we read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's it, I said. It's great, isn't it? It's compelling. Well, he's just looking at me. <laughs> he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to make out of it. So I got up, and I walked across the room, and I sat down next to him. I said, let me help you with this. And I proceeded to explain what this is all about. I said, you notice the word here that says word? You know what that means? <laughs> he didn't have a clue. And I said, well, that comes from a Greek concept. It has to do with the mind of God, the wisdom of God. And, and what he's saying is that this God is is the father of all wisdom, the creator of all that is. And he goes on in the next line, and he talks about how he was with him in the beginning of time, and, and that person he's talking about is Jesus. So you see, what John is trying to communicate is that Jesus was with God at the very beginning of creation. You see the way this started? What are those first three words? In the beginning, he said. I said, yeah, you know anywhere else where it says that? No. Well, let me, let me show you. So we turn back to the beginning of Genesis, and I said, read that. What are the first three words? In the beginning. You see what's happening? This is great stuff. <laughs> Jesus, he's saying, was with God at the very beginning of creation. Jesus and God are one and the same. 
And that's what John wants these people to understand. And he used this unusual language because he knew that the people who would be reading it, many of them were Greek, and they understood these concepts. And it would make all the sense in the world, and it would make, open the door for them to better understand who Jesus was. Well, he just kind of didn't say much, but I could tell I, I had opened the door for him. I said, let's go on. And you know, for the next hour, we turned that, we turned that waiting room into a Bible study. <laughs> and I helped him understand what, what this was all about. And, and he, his attitude just changed in a remarkable way. And I couldn't help but think in reflecting upon that experience that God was exactly right when he was talking to Samuel. We don't need to be looking on the outside. We don't need to be taking in outward appearances and making judgments on that basis. We need to be looking into the heart. We need to be trying to get to the truth that people have deep within them. And we need to be opening ourselves to that truth. We need to understand that God is calling us to love everyone around us and to take the time that's necessary to bring that love to life. Well, their car was done before mine, so they left. And as they left, there were two ladies in the waiting room that came over, and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> now what? And they just stood before me, and they said, thank you. Thank you. We were really, really upset by what they were saying, but we didn't know what to do about it. But you had the conviction to say what you thought. And the next thing you know, they were hugging me. <laughs> and it was, it was like a little bit of a party right there in the waiting room. What a powerful, powerful experience that was. I learned not to look on the outside. Look on the inside. That's where you find the truth. That's where you find the love. And that's where sometimes in that holy moment, God will rise up in the context of that connection to say, surprise! I've been here waiting for you. Amen. Amen.